North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, I said to you, uh, I think it was last week, might have been a week before when we were recording, that we would need to take on this idea of pacifism a bit more, that the the concept of violence, especially for the Missouri Synod Lutheran crowd, is an uncomfortable one. And and you would, I think, you mentioned something uh, afterwards. You said, you know, that's because you went to St. Louis. And and, um, that might be true. (laughs) That might be true. But I do think it's, it's out there as an ideological hiccup. That really has to be faced. So we got another listener question here, and you can always send in yeah. your questions, everyone, at uh, brief, briefhistoryofpower.com. Uh, and I'm not going to read all of it. She says some very nice things about us, but uh, uh, she goes on and says this. She says, I think you too quickly dismissed pacifism as apathy. I am not a pacifist, but I am passingly familiar with what I think is a fairly rich theological tradition. It seems this apathetic approach to pacifism uh, label uh, seems too facile to dismiss Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I would contend that he didn't finish as a pacifist. Uh, I don't know now. Uh, well, <laughs> no, definitely not. Right. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. Jacques, Jacques Ellul, I think I said that right. Miroslav Wolf, 
Stanley Hauerboss, who is the only one so far I'm familiar with besides Bonhoeffer, and John Howard Yoder uh, as simply apathetic. So you can't really say those guys were just you know wallowing in apathy, and that's why they were pacifists. I think is is the the concern. So. Um, let's keep this conversation going and let you respond to that. Sure. Apathy is not the same thing as indifference or nihilism, to be clear. And I think people use those things as synonyms and that leads to a great deal of confusion. Apathy means a, a lack of feeling or a lack of sensi- sensibility for something or someone, right? A, a pathic is someone who is feeling and he may be feeling the wrong thing usually but therefore john howard yoder for example who who turned out to be who turned out to be what we now call a sexual predator just to take him as an example he's definitely not apathetic in the sense that he was indifferent to american politics he wrote a whole book called the politics of jesus trying to align the lord jesus christ with the priorities of the libertarian left in the united states and was largely successful for a while he is probably Hauerwas's greatest intellectual influence directly. And that is helpful to know because Hauerwas has been semi-indigenized in conservative Christianity by virtue of presenting what I think is the intellectual version of the Benedict option. Uh-huh. And so in the, in the way that I'm using this noun or, or the adjective apathetic, I believe the Benedict option to be similarly apathetic. And what I mean by that is you have to develop an indifference or a callousness toward other people's suffering or larger situations in order to maintain pacifism. That's why pacifism in Christianity is always the refuge of small groups who are generally separating off from the rest of society in one or more ways. So monastic orders, the Anabaptists, and so forth. That all goes along with, as pacifism does simply intellectually, a false understanding of mankind, which we've said before, false anthropology directly and then false theology indirectly is really the heresy of our time. It's it's not usually someone worshiping God the mother directly. They'll get there eventually, but they usually start with a false anthropology. And so pacifism's false anthropology is this, that all human, all human problems prior to the last coming of Jesus Christ can be reconciled. Or if they can't, then it is not the Christian church's job to think about or be answerable for that. And this is, this is, usually a difference more visible in history than in theology purely because speculatively it's like, yeah, I have no problem with peace. Historically though, I do have a problem with a group really only caring about their own welfare. Whereas for example, the Augsburg confession identifies one of the things the church is doing in article 16 as trying to uphold the state and the family as good ordinances of God, uh, good works of God uh, earlier in that article. So pacifism is apathetic in this sense. And if you think I'm playing word games, that's fine. Don't I, I'm not worried about that and you don't need to be either. I think it has a stricter definition than people use it. Pacifism is only possible 
when you think too highly of mankind and therefore believe more problems can be fixed without violence than really can. And also when you think far too lowly of public life in all of its manifestations. And I mean, Miroslav Volf teaches at Yale, so he, he doesn't have to live in the real world. Bonhoeffer didn't end up as a pacifist. Howard Wass taught at Duke, again, doesn't have to accept the consequences really for anything. So a lot of these things are much easier to see when someone like Bonhoeffer gets into a political situation where you actually have to decide, do I really believe that all violence is wrong? And in the case of most Anabaptist sects, they have maintained that all violence is wrong, have therefore been punished. I mean, before Japanese or Germans were interned, we interned many, many Quakers during the American Revolution and shipped them from Pennsylvania to Virginia. They were separated from their families and lost their businesses. So I, you know, pacifism is something that requires a certain, it's not apathy in the sense of like just utter indifference to other human beings, but it is an indifference to their ultimate welfare <laughs> because you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to help them. You're not going to stop anything. And I could go on and on about what it was like for Pennsylvania to be governed by pacifists, which was actually the case until 1752. And it was, it was destructive of human beings' lives because they simply refused to fight the Indians. Uh, they just refused and obviously didn't concern them either because they lived in Philadelphia. There were no Indians there. So, okay. Um, to me, all that makes sense. But I think if the, the the person who's going to make the argument for pacifism is going to yeah. is going to go to the words of Jesus, turn the other cheeks an easy one. Uh, I, I think of we just went through Passion Week. You know, all who take the sword will die by the sword. You know, put that down. Uh, my kingdom's not of this world. And then even so, so the Anabaptists who lost house and home, wife and family, will they not have one hundredfold restored in the life to come? Isn't that kind of the whole the whole argument? Yeah. And the issue there is that you're taking words that are applied directly to individuals in the case of the Sermon on the Mount or to the apostolic ministry, which of course does not spread by the sword in the case of, let's say, you know, Matthew 9, end of 9 through 11, 1. And you are applying those as normative for all Christians everywhere at all times. And it is, it is, it's, it's a basic misreading that only makes Christianity possible for a small number of people. So this is the case with the Anabaptists. Uh, you know, the, the less pacifistic Anabaptists get, just coincidentally, the more evangelistic they become. The ones who are most thoroughgoing, such as Old Order Amish or Mennonites, do not do evangelism. But very similarly, monastics in the Middle Ages who refuse to take up the sword and have nothing to do with normal orders of life, such as family or economics, at least directly. Uh, again, there are degrees of that, just like there are with the Anabaptists. The thing that's happening there is that you take things that are normative for individual conduct. I am not, in fact, in my life running around seeking vengeance for every wrong done to me, but I recognize that it is a good order of God, that there is an order of life called government that should punish wickedness with physical violence called the sword. It's not just a metaphor. And so those things are either recognized as good works of God or alternatively and Anabaptism, monasticism, there are various forms of this in Christian history. Also early Pentecostalism, another with a very two-tier vision of Christian life, 
thoroughly pacifistic in its beginning. You know, these different forms of Christianity always end up creating multiple classes of Christians because as it turns out, only some of us will have the luxury of being cut off from the messiness of life. The rest of us have to live here. And what I'm presenting, what the Lutheran confessions present as an ethic for Christian life allows you to be in the messiness of life while also being a Christian because your perfection, you know, you know, your evangelical perfection to take a monastic word consists in the fear of God. It does not consist in the avoidance of certain messy forms of life. I, I am not forgiven uh, my sins because I am, for instance, ordained, right? Because I've entered into a certain form of life that other people have not. So there is, there is a lot going on here. Pacifism, I think of as the tip of the spear of a, 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 an entire theology involving a different view of man, a different view, view of perfection, a different understanding of righteousness, and a, a, a much different relationship to the world than is exemplified by, let's say, Augustinian Christianity, where we affirm the goodness of the world and the justice, limited and imperfect as it is under, you know, under this current age, the justice of things such as war and punishment. Yeah. Uh, they exhorted me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Is that just handing out bread uh, if your neighbor is poor and being attacked by, I don't know, the Turk? Um, what, what do you do about that, right? <laughs> yeah, so right. You, yeah. you just ignore right. him. And that's what right. so what you're saying when you say apathetic is, is you're really kind of meaning passive, but not just passive in sort of um, not doing anything, but uh, unwilling to take action. Right, like, like yeah, very yeah. actively passive, and yeah. in that way, you have to turn a blind eye to certain things. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I and I think that's better than saying, "Well, we turned the other cheek." Well, no, no, you really didn't, because you remembered, for instance, and the, the Anabaptists, for example, have a whole book called "The Martyr's Mirror," where they remember constantly and very keenly things that, for example, Lutherans did to them in the 16th century. That doesn't mean that that was good. Like, I'm, I'm so glad they drowned those women and children. I'm saying they're not, they are not getting over it either. Because hmm. you're saying turn the other cheek is about getting over it. It's not, turn a moral, the other it's cheek, not a moral yeah, Turn the other cheek involves an actual indifference to slights mm -hmm. that is not revealed when you nurse grudges. Because you're saying, you want to slap this cheek? Go ahead, slap the other one. That, that's, that's an indifference to that person's power over your body at that second that has nothing to do with whether I'm supposed to stop home invaders. It has to do with an indifference to the righteousness that this world offers in practice. Check out the descriptions of the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. An indifference that is not manifested in very many human beings, certainly not pacifists as groups. They, they will very often nurse grudges. It's been a big bone of contention between... Mennonites in the Lutheran World Federation, for example, is that the Lutherans would apologize for things that they did not do. Tell me if you've heard this story before. Um, so these kinds of things are, they have to do with, pacifism is just such a great example of the value of watching practice and therefore the historical record over the way that people articulate things. Because as I said, particularly in the example of Miroslav Wolf or Stanley Hauerwas, 
you are dealing with people who will not have to, because of their life position, accept the consequences of what they're saying. So Bonhoeffer is a really interesting example of this because he goes back and forth on this. He's not certainly not a politically or theologically apathetic person, goes back and forth on this, ends up supporting the notion, which is really quite a step for a German historically or theologically to support the notion of the deposition of tyrants. There's a reason that Catholic Germans came to that position faster than Bonhoeffer did. But yeah, that's not apathy, but it's also not pacifism at the end. So the way that we're talking about apathy involves kind of a categorical indifference to the fate of other human beings, because you have closed off the capacity to do anything for them beyond sending money or help or the like, you cannot actually ensure their safety finally. So uh, you mentioned reading Jesus in his context and proof texting was a problem before sound bites. But now, I mean, we really are in a time where wisdom is a bumper sticker and it's, Jesus actually had a lot of them too. He's got, he's got, he's a quotable. There's no question about that. And yet, um, this is a major uh, problem. I don't think we're going to solve it today on this show, but just to, to hat tip at least to you're pointing that out, uh, that so much of what passes for Christianity these days is, is the parroting of one idea without any of the ideas tied to it or connected to that. And so Jesus, the sound by guru it really makes him one of many gods at that point when we start treating him that way, I think. Yeah, right, right. And, and and that that always goes along with, I think, an exaltation of the instrument over the master. That I mean, that's that's how you get Christian cults, is is Jesus in sound bites and the master extensively. Hmm. You know. So so if you, you know, if you listen to this show more per week than you read your Bible or you listen to it even half as much as you read your Bible, please stop listening to the show. Yeah. 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 Amen to that. <laughs> it really just is not that important. Well, that's, so. I, mean, I, I just got to jump on that. Cause I, I've beat yeah. this horse enough times. Like you want to watch movies, do you, you want to play video games? Do you? All right. What percentage of your life waking hours? Now, what percentage of your life reading the Bible waking hours? How's that look when you do that ad- addition, right? Oh, it doesn't look good. Does it? Your screen time's way outweighing your time in the text, right? Just, just, just let that be the sucker punch. It was, we're going to move on. Um, uh, resident aliens, how was, is that, is that where you're kind of pointing to when you mentioned, um, uh, it being like the, the alt Benedict option? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is the shoot. I don't know how old that book is. It's 80s, old. 90s. It's old. I read it at yeah. Sam and it was old then. Yeah. 80s. Yeah. yeah something like yeah. that. 80s sounds right. It is, it is, I think the intellectual justification you know, when you're dealing with somebody like Rod Dreher, you're dealing with a journalist, you're always dealing with ideas at second or third hand, unless the person is something like one of the old time foreign correspondents, in, <laughs> in which case they're probably an intelligence asset on some level, <laughs> <laughs> but at least they have extensive knowledge of another culture and, and stuff like that. If you're, if you're talking about it, you know, a domestic journalist that doesn't have, I don't know, vast, you know, insider knowledge of you know, whatever, uh, Missouri state politics or something, you're, you're dealing with an idea at second or third hand. So you shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Benedict option really is, I think, entirely contained in the book, Resident Aliens. And not to talk about pacifism specifically, which 
has to do with Yoder's immense influence on Howard Wass. But to talk about the reason that that would be popular among Christians who are not, Howard Wass is a self-described Anabaptist Anglican, meaning his primary theological influences are Anabaptists, his preferred church in which to worship is, is the Episcopal church. And whenever someone says Anglican, this is just a little hint. You can tell they weren't or aren't an Episcopalian. That's just something to know. And, and it's, a, it's a way of differentiating converts or, or outsiders from people from inside, you know, let's say George H.W. Bush, an actual Episcopalian. So Hauerwas is a way, I think, that conservative or conservative-ish big influence on and, and, and collaborator with Will Williman, who's a United Methodist bishop. Those, those strains of American conservatism that were conservative Christians specifically, that were uncomfortable with the moral majority, again, hello, 1980s, would be favorable to and, and have, at least in, in the knowledge that I've seen of it in mainline Protestantism, as well as the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, are favorable to a book like Resident Aliens and are favorable to the Benedict Option because neither of those either more or less popularized versions involves responsibility for the broader society. Hmm. And that is popular if you were already there in the case of a sort of sideline, semi-evangelical, semi-mainline denomination like the LCMS, or if you were losing that position, maybe within your own denomination as a conservative United Methodist might have been, right? That's already, that's obviously lost almost altogether at this point. So when you're, when you get a book like Resident Aliens and it tells you that this was never Jesus's intention and you were supposed to be relatively uninfluential, you were supposed to be generally powerless, this will go along with your general sense that you are and your general sense that you never will be anything other than that, socially, politically, economically speaking. This is not to say that I, you know, I, I wish that the Christians were running some sort of quasi-theocracy as parts of the United States have actually been historically, let's be honest. You're telling me the Southern Baptist Convention has no impact on politics in the American South? Come on. But I'm not, I'm not looking for a quasi-theocracy, but I'm not looking for a retreat. And I think that a lot of Americans, especially conservative Christians, are looking for retreat. <laughs> and I understand that, but I don't see it either in the nature of the gospel. That is, someone has to live in New York State and preach the gospel there even in like 10 years. Someone has to live in California. But also, it doesn't seem to me to be really in the spirit of desiring the welfare of others, that you just retreat or if you are there, that you just completely conform. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, what I remember that book making me feel free about, I, and maybe it gave me a lot of yeah. problems. I don't know. But I just remember like, finally, someone's admitting that we're losing. This is helpful. We're being honest about how <laughs> right. much ground we've lost. Yep. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, but mm -hmm. it, but it, uh, if it was, this is the way it's supposed to be. And he did, he yeah. did talk about like Constantinianism yeah. as a bad thing. I remember right. that. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, to try to uh, shift us, I think this can seg us into framework and framing as uh, the issue. And if I'm not mistaken, that is officially 
the position of the left is that the issue is not the issue. It's the framing that's the issue. Um, but uh, in, you mentioned earlier uh, a false anthropology being yeah. the heresy of our times, but this is really part of a, a broader idea slash theology that's false. And uh, false anthropology, I mean, you can see this in the trans movement, whether it's transhuman or transsexual, doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. We're dealing with man not existing. Uh, the abolition of man that Lewis wrote about so long ago really, really coming to pass. Um, all of this, I don't know if this really exhibits it or not, but you made me think of it. So I just really want to tell this story. Uh, there's yeah. this time when I was, uh, taking my wife out to, to go walk around in a, uh, it was a, a city we don't live in, but my family's there, a place like an outdoor mall. And she wanted to go to like her, her, one of her favorite stores, it's called anthropology. And so we're like, we're walking over to it and I'm looking at anthropology, anthropology. Oh, look, it's Greek. It's Greek. Wait a minute. This is a store for women about women. Like there's not a thing in this store I would ever buy. And it's called the study of man. Well, why did, why did they do that? I started thinking out loud. Well, if they called it, if it was about women, they'd have to call it gynecology. Guna, gynecology. Oh my goodness. That's why they didn't do it. Anthropology. There you go. Um, and uh, I don't know. You didn't laugh. So maybe it wasn't that funny, but that is a mis- issue. <laughs> It is an issue of framing. I, I, framing. They I'm not good on that, puns. It is an issue of framing. Well, I'm just not good at puns. Yeah, didn't grow up with if, them. If you name your store gynecology, nobody's going to shop there. That's that's what I think. So, uh, <laughs> well, it sounds medical, you yeah. know. Whereas <laughs> I think they spell it in the French way, and you know. So uh, they realized though that for the sake of framing it and yeah, being right. marketable and cool, anthropology went a long way, and the study of man is full of dresses and flowery items, you know. And uh, and so, any case. Uh, framing not facts, the essence of understanding. Uh, the left has known this for a long time. Uh, they have. The, LC- the LCMS doesn't have a clue about framing. Uh, we just <laughs> we just we repeat what we were told. That's it. <laughs> well, I I think that it 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 is an anthropological insight that that framing matters at least as much as facts. Facts can be hoarded, and I don't think that there is necessarily a deficit of facts available to people certainly in the past 20 years, that really hasn't been the problem. They may be fact poor because of their browsing habits or whatever, that they're more inclined to watch cat videos than look something up. But it's not, strictly speaking, a, a lack of access to facts, certainly not in the United States, from which people suffer. They could, in fact, eat you know, relatively fresh meat. You know, so, so their diet, for example, their nutritional diet is also it's not a problem of a lack of access necessarily. It is a problem of their sense of what is possible or what should be possible, or especially in the case of history, the framing that makes certain things thinkable or unthinkable, or just not even something that you think about at all. So we've been talking a lot about the first world war to get back there. Let's, let's go by this route that when we think about the significance of the First World War for the world today, we don't. <laughs> it, it really has very little to do with our framing. Our moral framing is largely a framing conditioned by the Second World War. So even though at the time of that war, people linked it not only verbally in the case of saying World War I, World War II, but they also saw the second war is flowing out of the first and the, and the settlements or lack of settlement coming out of the first. 
when we think about our own history and what is significant, it probably doesn't go that far back for most people. And it certainly doesn't go as far back as the First World War, even though it's the creator of a several conditions that we'll talk about this week that are really determinative for our life. They, they are the origin of so much in our life. And when we talk next week about prohibition, they're also determinative of prohibition, which is an entire narrative about what goes into our bodies that is now very important, not so much for alcohol as for drugs of various kinds. So the First World War is framed as really nothing. I don't just mean that in public education. I mean that in terms of even how we think about foreign policy. So for example, <laughs> if the First World War were at all determinative for American discussion of, of foreign policy, we would all remember how we got into it for idealistic reasons after being told that we wouldn't get into it. And then once we got into it for idealistic reasons, no one cared about our idealistic reasons afterward. That's the story of the First World War. Wilson sort of lies to us, and then he's rather open. And then he tries to tell the Europeans why they should care about his ideas, and they just don't. And Europe reaches a set of settlements largely undetermined by Wilson, with the exception of allowing certain forms of nationalism to take over Central and Eastern Europe, such that you get states that you hadn't had for hundreds of years, such as Poland, which will, you know, will be its own kind of a problem, okay, leading into the Second World War. So if that had any impact on American foreign policy, we would all at least recall that. We don't. And we are fervently nationalistic for, I mean, always for other countries, right? I mean, that's kind of a hallmark. You're allowed to be extremely nationalistic if it's for another country, if you're an American, right? You're allowed to be fervently pro-Ukrainian. You can be fervently pro-Afghan women. You can be fervently pro, you know, Shias in Iraq or something. Kurds, especially, we like the Kurds. We have many pictures of Kurdish women with no veils on, right? And we, we armed what are effectively left-wing militias in Kurdistan for, for many years. So that, that kind of proxy nationalism, whose highest expression is obviously both parties' fervent support for Israel and almost any prerogative that Israel wants to assume in the Middle East, those are things that are really only possible if you completely forget what happened when we did that on a big scale the first time. Now, obviously, we're not, we're not, we have a certain set of lessons attached to the fate of Jews in the Second World War, not really connected to the nation state of Israel or to the Zionist agency that, that preceded the nation state of Israel. So we don't really know any of that history. We don't really know where Israel came from or how the Zionists operate or anything like that. We just kind of know that Jews were killed in Europe in the Second World War. And, and so we're trying to stop things like that. We're trying to prevent massacres, we say. And, and we heard about this in talking about the death of Belgians uh, being used in a similar way in the First World War. But none of the things that actually occurred or the indifference of the American public, public before the war or after to Wilson's idealism about faraway places, none of that is remembered. 
So it's not that you can't access those facts, right? In the same sense that if you read the New York Times every day, you could access lots of facts. <laughs> Believe it or not, with the views that you hear me have on this show, I used to read the New York Times every single day, and I probably did that for a decade. And I'm not really sure that it affected me very much politically because I was just kind of gathering facts. I never gathered the sense that I actually should care nearly as much about, you know, the fortunes of the left wing in France or something as I was being told I should by the New York Times. So th the problem here is not facts. It's pretty much always the way the facts are framed. They're accessible somewhere. What matters is how you put them together with everything else. Hmm. Yeah. The, the era that we live in is one in which we, the commoner, are expected to accept the framework given. And it doesn't really matter whether that's the New York Times or the controlled opposition. Yeah. The idea, again, is that there's there's only one way of telling the story. And right. so your point about World War II and World War One, and, um, and every time you bring this up, what goes through my head is, is the Marvel movies recently and Captain America's central place in that. And how much of what it means to be Captain America or Tony Stark, for that matter, is all World War II yeah, triumphalism. Right. Yep. And then uh, that kind of crosshashes with I remember in high school being taught that World War One was sort of an accident, whereas World War Two was more let's stop Hitler. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. yep. And and there was at least a hat tip I think uh, my U.S. history teacher to the idea that. Um, uh, the League of Nations and the the peace that was uh, supposed to be brokered there really didn't fix anything. Um, if right. anything, it, it made it worse. But now, okay, so so taking all of that, um, what does it mean to be an American? Um, it, it hasn't meant George Washington for a long time. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean uh, what North versus South and any kind of understanding of that, other than that Confederacy bad because slavery. Uh, all that it really has come to mean is punch Nazis. And that framework right. of who we are, we're those who punch Nazis and not yeah. ever letting it happen to the Jews again. That's why we're supposed to go and, and like actually genocide the Russians so that the Ukrainians don't get genocided. You right? got it. Yeah. You got it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's it's also why America is this is is framed as this history free place. So literally anybody could be an American at any time, doesn't matter, has nothing to do with culture or history or place or anything. Not literally anybody could be an Israeli, not literally anybody could be a Ukrainian. Therefore, we need to protect those things, right? So the nationalism is always, and you, you can see this, you see this a little better in generations that are more trusting. So you're going to, you're going to see a certain attitude toward Israel among people, maybe 40 and older that you will almost never find under 40. And that has to do with a, a, a nationalism by proxy that is permissible because their understanding of themselves as Americans, whatever their you know ethnic origin, however long their family has been in the United States, their understanding of themselves as Americans is completely unmoored from history. It's mm -hmm. just America as a sort of the virtuous cop who doesn't take bribes and and enforces law and order in this city that's a nice dream man i mean even it's, it's, it's a nice dream. I, I mean i i i don't i don't think it ever was because it's because it's so anthropologically false 
about both other nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what I mean and, is- And about us. Go ahead. What I mean is that there, there is a bunch of us out there who believed it though, and actually would just be nice cops at the end of the day. Um, this is the, the, the <laughs> they're the rednecks, man. And, and uh, for, for lack of anything else, that's about the only white culture there really is. I mean, aside from, I think there is some, uh, some ethno-nationalism violent, you know, stuff out there as well, but like there's a, there's a big swath of people that want to just, uh, wave the flag and, and be the good guys. And that's why they sign up to go follow and be the good guys. Unfortunately, as, as you know, I think you've, you've exposed pretty well, um, they're just following the wrong people. Um, but if, if you have to give, some kid from Nebraska, a dream, uh, what dream does he have? Uh, it's not going to be his German heritage. It's probably not going to be his, his Polish heritage, maybe a little bit more, maybe Irish, right? Once you get into the Italians, uh, there, you know, there's a little, then more you're there. kind of allowed to have that. Yeah. yeah. But, but, mm-hmm. but not in a way that, that, um, would be white, right? It, it, it has to be sort of like an anti-white thing that's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Meredith yep. and I have been, have been chatting about this in the sense of, just trying to figure out like what white even is and how much of it is a construct because, and and then from that, how much we've lost, like who, who are we as a people? Um, I mean, and now, now we don't even shop at Walmart, uh, Ikea, you know, and Amazon, like what kind of identity is this? What's on your wall? You know, where'd you get that desk? You know, Um, it's just, it's sad. I mean, we've we've had our, our souls ripped out from us, not in some sort of like we we lost our theology of Jesus way, but in terms of our, um, whatever this self-determination concept that was behind the waving of that mythical flag, um, that is just so far gone from now. And th- that is the myth though, right? It's self-determination. That's why you can come here and be different is because it's about self-determination. And I, I started with this just by saying like, it's a nice dream. It's it's a nice dream. Um, but yeah. you're saying that the dream is, is not even possible. Is that kind of where you're at? The, yeah. The, the dream of being good cop is not even possible because it, it, it presumes a community in which peace needs to be kept is that historically simply does not exist among nations. Hmm. Nations do not relate to each other the same way that people with a shared language and culture who live in a specific place could relate to each other in which the peace is kept, right? Kind of historically and constitutionally and in, in not a paper sense, but a legal sense of that word in which there are officers of the peace because there is a community with certain ways of doing things and that needs to be maintained. And it is by the sheriff or, or whoever. I think that has to do with something else that is a reality to some degree because of World War I, but not, not entirely more because of World War II, which creates a lot more movement around the country. But that is the sense, and you have, you know, maybe more of this sense in in a Florida or or a California, maybe more in the West generally than in the Midwest or East. That is that people exist as individuals. You know, the the category of white is is always a contrast to other races. It was never supposed to be like a cultural category, and and it, it wasn't you know, supposed to replace the fact that you were uh, English, uh, which it has for basically everybody who's English in the United States, which is a lot of us, I think probably a majority actually, well, that would make sense historically. It, it wasn't a cultural category. It, it existed to distinguish you from members of other races for various purposes, social, legal, et cetera. That wasn't supposed to replace the fact that you were from Vermont or Mississippi 
or Kansas. The melding into your white, but you have no particular culture is going to occur wherever you are cut off from that culture. I don't think that's regionally unique anymore. I just think it happened faster in places like Florida or California, where people were going there as individuals, many of them, and therefore were largely cut off from those sources of culture that do exist in older parts of the United States that were settled and then dwelled in communally. This gets back to the Hollywood stuff about reinvention yeah. though, right? Like yep. you, you go to yep. California to not be who you were and to, yep. to be something else. Yeah. And that is why I don't, and James Elroy, kind of the, uh, David Lynch of novelists, love him, can't recommend him to everybody, but absolutely love him. James Elroy says this about Los Angeles, but he says, look, Los Angeles is just like America. Everyone else loves to hate on us and everyone wants to be here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I kind of love that line. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, because, because there are things about, there are things about California or Los Angeles specifically, or whatever, that, that, are, that are not like anywhere else in America. I'm from a very different part of America, for example. But maybe the opposite, actually. <laughs> but there are things about it that are just like the rest of America, only more so. And for that reason, that's why we picked it up early on in the show. But that is definitely the case, historically speaking, with both world wars, because LA is going to go from a regionally important city, but definitely not the most important city, even in California, to by the 1920s, it's, it's going to be nationally known. It'll be another three decades before it gets its own major league baseball team, but it is enormously important by the time the Second World War begins, because it becomes very large by about 1925. And that is because Americans are beginning to go where they can, not where they were born. And yeah, Americans are very mobile compared to Europeans always throughout our history, but those possibilities expand enormously with not only railroads, but then the advent of the automobile, uh, which the prosperity of the 1920s is going to make possible. Hmm. It made me think about then the, the refugee status of the thirties that continues to pile California full. Um, yeah, uh, maybe not, not quite where you want to go. Uh, you have three examples of framing that we should probably yeah. try to tackle now. And, yeah. and they all are interesting in their own right. I know you've wanted to talk about Spanish flu for a while um, <laughs> because it just is so much like what we just went through in various yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah it, that makes it almost boring. Yeah, but I, I talk about it a little bit. Yeah, but since since we were just on kind of migration, I want to I wanna start with a third example in the list that, that we're working off of, which is just the idea that for instance, if you say urban music, it's sort of a euphemism for music by, by Black people in the United States. That is just sort of presumed that cities are places that, that Black people live. And that's, that's where most Black people in the United States are going to live. That, that's a relic of the First World War because we mobilize on an enormous scale. The United States at the time of the First World War is probably roughly 90% white but that doesn't really reflect the fact that the 10% that is not white is almost entirely black, very few Hispanics, very few Asians in the whole scheme of things. And that 10% that is almost entirely black is almost entirely in the Southeast, right? So the you know former slave states. That changes during the First World War because jobs become available 
in cities that require enormous amounts of manufacturing, especially in the East and the Midwest, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York City, but also places like Los Angeles or Dallas that will happen even more in the Second World War. That creates populations in especially the, the Northeast and the Midwest that n- never existed on anything like the same scale before. So it, it basically changes both American Black life, which now becomes predominantly scattered and urban, and it changes those metropolises because they really have very little racial diversity prior to that. Even a relatively racially diverse place for its whole history, such as San Francisco, has basically no Black population to speak of before the 20th century. So it is the needs of war production and industrial production that's sort of adjacent to those government efforts that's going to really change the demography of American cities. American cities prior to this are largely separated by either class distinctions where there's not many immigrants, such as, say, Seattle or Portland or Minneapolis, where your your immigrant populations are pretty small, all in all, or they're like Scandinavian who integrate very fast into kind of predominantly Anglo-America, Anglo in the strict sense of the word, not as kind of like a synonym for white. Or those cities are divided ethnically, right? So Philadelphia is... So divided between <laughs> between Scots Irish and kind of Roman Catholic Irish that they have you know multiple large riots in the 19th century. Those dynamics are going to change radically because now the major people group divisions are not going to be class distinctions, as in maybe a European city or some of our northern cities, or ethnic distinctions. Although those will continue to exist, they're going to be racial distinctions, and this is why you can find. I don't want to say this is like every major American city because there's always an exception. Almost all American cities, you can find some kind of large scale riot. And it's in, in, in Wikipedia telling it's always going to be the fault of the whites every single time. Blacks have no agency in the left-wing version of American history. They're, so they're also never at fault for anything. Whites have the only agency, so they're always at fault. But there's going to be a riot between races in pretty much every American city sometime between 1918 and 1920. And that is something I think very few people know. Now, now when you use race there, though, you are talking about color of skin, correct? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Among other things. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm still kind of hung up on, and this was in the Discord a while back, um, a, you know, is how much is race a thing for real? Mm-hmm. Like, as It's a construct. Sure. We can use it on Wikipedia to pit each other against each other. But yeah. the idea that there is, um, that there's any homogeneity, homogeneity uh, in these uh, two or maybe sometimes three colors that we're allowed to exist on on the planet. I, I don't know. I, I It seems to me like it's just uh, it's it's falling prey to the language of the enemy. And uh, you know to recognize that there were there were riots that take place uh, between peoples of varying skin colors, and that that yeah. was that was all it took at that point is again exactly why I would say um, we want to we want to be wiser than that in terms of how we understand each other. Um, that just as I would argue that white is not a thing, I would argue that black is not a thing. There are, there are definitely people with dark skin, to be sure. 
some of them do identify with black culture. And um, if anyone were to do identify with white culture the way they do, then they would be called racist, right? Uh, for the, the that approach. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And, but beyond that, though, there is um, there is plenty of violence, uh, black on black violence, to use the term, uh, right. going on in the defend the police areas that have taken place. And um, I would call that, that that tribal. You know, it's just gang warfare, right? What, what is that? It's tribes. Um, you know, so what, you share one culture? No, you really don't. Right. And so the more that we just are in this this bipolar way of thinking about each other, uh, I just think the more fragile actually we are, the more manipulatable we are. Um, so what I'm what I am curious about with, you know, the uh, the riots that were taking place yeah. uh, back when, I mean, it, it does show some of the the ghost of slavery, though, I think. Right. And Jim Crow and, and whatnot, that there was this growing or inbuilt perception, uh, evolutionary perception of the Anglo, um, not English speaker, but uh, with an English descent being uh, Yankee, right? Higher, higher quality. I'm the elite. I will rule you. And so the lower you are on that on that uh, uh, spectrum and you're Italian, you're kind of halfway to black. Right. And so, you know, you're not quite looked at the same way. Um, that was there and to ignore yeah. that that's part of history is, is folly. But I also don't want to like wholesale import uh, those categories. Cause I don't, I just don't think they help us either. Yeah. Okay. So I think that, 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 well, that goes along with something else that's going to be at least precipitated by the first world war, which is it first, uh, as kind of a stopgap measure in 1921. And then very decisively in 1924, we closed down on a nationwide scale immigration for all intents and purposes from everywhere, except Northwestern Europe. And the idea here pertains to the to the question of what is race, but it also pertains to the question of what is ethnicity, and does that have anything to do with the United States of America? And the contention, obviously, on the part of you know a majority of elected representatives and also President Coolidge at that time in 1924 is that the United States of America is what it is because it is largely, in 1924, I think this is still true, it is largely an, it is largely an British-descended country with, therefore, certain ways of living and customs that do not have to do with the paper of the United States Constitution. Okay, that is part of it, that Constitution the anthropology, which is almost uniformly low, if you look at the Constitution's estimate of human capacities and desire for power, not coincidentally, I think, springing out of a Calvinist descended culture, those that 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 is a really serious question raised. And you know, your understanding of race or the, those are all the other side of a lot of changes. What I'm bringing up and bringing this up is there are alternatives at certain points in history. Like, so at this point, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, am I going to lock down American immigration by the year 2027 to, you know, just Britain and Scandinavia and Germany and France, which is pretty much the option in 1924? No, what's the point? But the question is, does this country, I think, like every other country in the world, have anything to do with the people that historically live there? And that also pertains to our, our ethnicity, does biology, physical descent, lineal descent from people have anything to do with how people behave or are? And that is a question that, you know, 
I think needs to be debated because if we don't discuss it, we don't, I don't think, I don't think we really have an explanation for why human groups exist. I think we could have an explanation for why if we said, well, you know, your, your descent from people has nothing to do with how you are or the way that you are or anything, then we could explain how individuals differ from each other, but we couldn't explain why families resemble each other, either phenotypically or behaviorally and then extended families. Right. So if I, my 12th great grandfather is Calvin Coolidge's first ancestor in the United States, that's I'm not making that up. (laughs) So why do I, why do I have an affinity for Calvin Coolidge? Uh, Does it have anything to do with any kind of direct connection? Maybe, maybe not. What I'm saying is that that question is off limits for us at this point. And it prevents us from thinking of the United States as anything other than a historically, a totally a historical good cop. Right. And, and in a sense where in the nature nurture debate, what you're suggesting is that we have overloaded nurture. We have the, way overloaded the nurture. That there is no more nature. Correct. Yeah. And we have, we have overlo- overloaded nurture to the extent that people don't even have to be responsible for their actions. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like American blacks are not conceded agency in their own history by people who are supposedly their friends and their protectors and their political patrons because they never even get to be responsible for anything that has ever happened that was bad. What's so fascinating is when there are some that are, and I follow a number of them on Twitter, and one of them sits on the Supreme Court, um, It is uh, they, they are excoriated by, Derek, can I say their own? Uh, yeah. For, for yeah, that. It's, right. a, it's a fascinating thing to watch. Um, so I think I'm still going to say that I like the story, right? That this Britannia as ideology call it common law Calvinism if you want to, uh, that there's this belief that good people could get along in the right system. The problem is not acknowledging that there are bad people. And yeah. in this regard also, then what what is the system? It, it must have the sword for the sake of punishing evil. Yeah. And yeah. we definitely are in a time then, again, where we're a generation and a half into the official ideology being that there there is... There is no universal evil. Uh, there are uh, groups that should be genocided and there are groups that should not be. And that can change depending on the needs of the elite who control. <laughs> right. That's right. Yep, yeah, exactly. Um, yep. But uh, the idea that that there should be a, a, a king's law. So, you know, I'm not necessarily advocating for, you know, uh, the U.S. Navy, a global force for good. Um, but, uh, you know, to break the king's peace. Right. Uh, that's an ideology that at one point did al- allow for groups of people that didn't have anything to do with each other to maintain the peace with each other under threat of punishment and yeah. usually for the sake of economy, right? For the sake of mutual good. And there's something yeah. of that, that that is in what the flag stood for before 2020. Uh, and why it's why my neighbors still fly that flag. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm, the false colors just bother me too much at this point, but, yeah. but, but I, but yeah. I, I, I want them not to. Right. Um, yeah. so, uh, I don't know if I just took us completely off tangent. I, I don't want to miss out on your other examples here. Uh, yeah. you know, cause you're, we're, we're, we got into this from, uh, you're giving us examples of framing and notice yeah. how we're not aware that they were race riots so-called in every major city in the U S after world war one, world war two. And this is part of what we, we, um, 
we've missed out on is the life that existed before that time we have no connection with. And the right. other two examples you give of us give to us are our amnesia, our memory holding of women in the workforce and how weird that is historically. And then I, I still want to hear about Spanish flu. I'm not going to let you have the Okay. Here, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the women in the workforce thing is a temporary thing. We're familiar with it, let's say, mimetically from Rosie the Riveter in the Second World War. But something like this exists in the First World War as well. That is, women get thrown into industrial war production. They will not really stay there, but everyone recognizes that this does change relations between the sexes, that women were not economically, let's say, protected and provided for, as was customary except for all but the very poorest in the United States before then. And that will change relationships. Such direct causation here is probably a stupid thing to say, but the birth rate is pretty absurdly low in the 20s and 30s. Some of that has to do with greater availability of contraception and some public discussion of it, although it's still illegal basically everywhere, even for married couples. But the birth rate is very low in the 20s and 30s. If you're listening to this, your parent, there were probably more of your parents than there were of your grandparents or your great-grandparents. And some of that has to do with, especially in American cities, women's change relationship to men. Men are not uniformly as they were even in Manhattan in 1910, economic and, and social providers exclusively, where with women working outside the home as a very rare thing. I mean, you know, you just got here, you just got off the boat. You don't really speak English. You have to go work in a factory for a while, but then you get married and you don't work in a factory anymore. So women's labor outside the home, right? Women as part of the market and therefore bringing the family into the vagaries of the market, right? Whereas before, if, if you're in a situation where men work outside the home, Men are subject to market conditions. Women and children are only indirectly subject to market conditions. Now everybody's subject to market conditions. And eventually, therefore, also everyone will be subject to government provision and therefore government regulation. So the things that some of the things we talked about in the education episodes are only possible because we're in two world wars that bring women and therefore care for children into public discussion rather than private familial discussion. That really hits the road right now in Florida and other yeah. places like that. I mean, that, yeah. where that's gone too. Yeah. All right. Spanish flu was made uh, by a U.S. biolab industry <laughs> somewhere in. Yeah. So this is this is uh, my favorite example of uh, they give you all the facts but not the right framing. So it's called Spanish flu, and there's there's a theory by historians, even you know, kind of left wing ac- academic historians, that that's just a propaganda name. Okay because Spain chose to stay out of the First World War and we were trying to drag them in. So once we start noticing that influenza is becoming a problem, beginning in the United States in 1918, we begin to call it Spanish flu as if that is perhaps the origin, also because the king of Spain at the time, later on in 1918, himself gets sick. So it's sort of a shame tactic to call it Spanish flu. The other mainstream theory about it is that it was spread <laughs> spread by people that had herd, herd immunity. <laughs> so 
they didn't know that they were asymptomatic spreaders. And those would be, this is just a weird little corner of world history. Those would be the almost entirely Chinese men who were shipped from mainland China to France to build railroads for the use of the assorted allied forces on the Western Front. You didn't know it happened. You can probably go find pictures and you're going to be confused, but it did happen. And the mainstream theory is that they are the ones who spread it to all the people who late in 1918 and especially early in 1919 will demobilize and travel back all over the world because you have Indians and Africans and Americans and various kinds of Europeans and everybody is on the Western front in some capacity. So they'll go all over the world and carry influenza with them. And this will be the cause of millions and millions. I mean, deaths greater than the estimated combat deaths in the first world war are attributed to the Spanish flu epidemic. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this, this sits right alongside another fact that you will be told, which is that the first diagnosis of Spanish flu was at an army camp. Okay. An army camp in Fort Riley, Kansas. Now, Kansas is in the middle of the North American continent. I think it might be precisely the middle of the North American continent certainly the, the geographic center of the United States. How did it not first appear in a port city? Now it does appear in port cities eventually. It is in the case of Philadelphia, for instance, blamed on a giant rally that they have for Liberty loans, which are war bonds you could buy to help finance the American war effort. That was before the government was telling you they could just print money inf- infinitely. They would, <laughs> they would still have you buy war bonds. And so there are unwittingly infected asymptomatic spreader sailors in the port of Philadelphia who spread it to those there that day, even though it's an outdoor event, but of course, no one is wearing masks. The thing about influenza is that they don't really explain how it got specifically to Fort Riley, Kansas, to soldiers who are dying of something, who are strangely very young. And everyone will, again, this is a fact you are told without sufficient framing. It unusually affected the young. Generally, influenza carries away the weak, the otherwise weak, right? We now call these comorbidities. So it's not obesity in America in 1918, but it should carry away the very old and the very young, but instead it's carrying away 21-year-old men. How could this be? Why are their lungs filling up with fluid, right? Why are they kind of suffocating to death? And it is not really explained how or why this is occurring in the middle of the American continent, why it's first spotted there. This is an alternate framing, right? But I think it's at least it's plausible, is that the First World War is the advent of chemical and biological warfare in any kind of scale. And research into it is utterly unregulated by anything. You can research whatever you want. And that, therefore, the reason that these things spread out of the United States Army in the First World War is because of research that we were doing that would, oh, I don't know, particularly affect young men in the prime of health. (laughs) And that is why young men in the prime of health, in addition to other people, did die of something throughout the United States in 1918, 1919, and even into 1920. 
Now again, you said this was worldwide too, or was it was it really this only? This is worldwide. Yeah, yeah, this is worldwide. But it's because spread from I the U.S. So far as we can actually track it. I, I well, I don't think we were the only ones doing this. And the other thing, and this is something, this is a this is obviously a point to be made with COVID. This is a point to be made with the diagnosis of what is HIV and what is AIDS throughout the world. Is that lists of symptoms. And, and how a patient presents are utterly erratic for HIV AIDS, for COVID at various times, and for influenza. So if a person is dying of something in Northern India in 1919, and someone is dying in Ohio in 1919, do they have the exact same symptoms? Not necessarily. Lots of people die. But what they're dying of and where it came from is, I think, what is utterly debatable. Right. Just like right now. Uh, exactly. COVID right. remains fairly debatable in terms of its actual uh, mortality rate and all that. Right. Especially with coding errors and things. Right. And, and so then, and now uh, you can, un- you could believe now that this thing could spread over the world fairly quickly. Back then, I mean, even with the, the deindustrialization of the front, it, yeah. it isn't like, People are flying on jets back and forth all the time, right? Yeah, it's- they're not flying on jets, um, but railroads are pretty fast. And so it's going to take a while to get to Australia. It's going to take a while to get to Mozambique, former German East Africa. It's going to take a while to get back to East Asia if it, in fact, came from there in any regard. It really should take a while to get to Kansas, too. You, I mean, you, that's just way Correct. out there. Yeah. 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 And so I I think it's far safer, especially because when we get some of these other chemical and biological scares in American history, like what turned out to be the origin of the anthrax scare back in 2001, almost nobody remembers that. That's just for the sake of... I do. And then Kennedy brought it up in his book and it really kind of made sense suddenly. For the sake of sheer remembrance, it might be worth an episode sometime. But, But I think it's far safer to say that these are the offscourings of the nascent military industrial complex than to say that somehow a disease is sort of like herded by Chinese men all the way from China and they're building railroads. And then it suddenly breaks out when everyone is demobilized, but it's dormant until then and first presents in an American context in the middle of the United States. That, that makes a lot less sense to me than the idea that it originates, maybe it has multiple points of origin as a as a version of biological research by the various combatant nations. Hmm. There's no way to frame that so it makes sense to me. All all of it seems to have holes in it, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it has holes. I think some things, but it but it does make sense to believe that that yeah. uh, that our our powers that be have had very little qualm about manipulating whatever they can find for the sake of weaponry and that the tendency of that historically, uh, which Hollywood has known very well, is that it always yeah. leads to mass death. Uh, I, I repent of thinking that because they made movies about not doing things because it would kill us all, that that meant anybody actually learned from those movies. Um, I thought, oh, good, we make movies about this. We must know better. But um, goodness. Goodness. Yeah. Well, and and I th- I think that it, it's helpful to look at mass militaries, whether drafted or just volunteer, and enormously larger than they used to be, which is the case for our military currently in the United States. Um, 
don't just look at them as fighting forces and they have these capabilities and they have these tanks and these jets or whatever. You also look at them as sort of experiments in human life. And one of those experiments in human life, and this continues to this day, is it's part of why, you know, mass COVID vaccination was hard to oppose, let's say internally for the military, right? I think there were, there should have been, and, and maybe there still are other options for members of the military. But the reason it's hard to oppose is that our militaries have been <laughs> sites of chemical, but especially biological and medical experimentation for a very long the time. Captain America. Yeah. That, that's and so, <laughs> so, so that's, you know, that's something that really has precedent especially in the first world war, because these are people who are subject to the government's power. And, you know, if, even if it's totally an accident, if something escapes, you know, they're trying to kill people like you, just not exactly you, but by accident, they killed you because you like the Germans they were trying to kill were also a, you know, a young man in the prime of life. Hmm. Using the ring for good and all that. You want to say something about war as a time of opportunity? You want to open with that next time? Let's let's finish out that way because I think that that is that is one way to think about uh, the social movement and eventually the political movement we're going to talk about next time, uh, which has very deep roots in American history, uh, in American cuisine, and a lot of other things. Is that when people think about cataclysms, they often just get scared. I think that is probably behind some of the desire for retreat or simply to be left alone, if that were possible, politically speaking, that we talked about in terms of resident aliens earlier in the hour. War is for anyone who wants to change anything, a time of great opportunity. And I don't just mean that in terms of combat. I, I also mean that the way that we've talked about it here in this episode, in terms of the home front, that lots of things can change and they can change pretty rapidly that could be horrible, that could be neutral, that could be wonderful, but it's all change. And change is made possible because people are moving, people are changing, their sense of what is possible or what is impossible is also changing. Their sense of immediacy often changes. They, they may become more desperate and, and drastic in their life decisions. I think you see this with the people who have been had cultural war waged on them their whole lives who are maybe, you know, 25 right now, they are very drastic in a way that I wasn't when I was 25, let alone someone who's 55 now was probably when he was 25. War changes people's sense of what is or what could be. And political movements that are savvy will take advantage of that state of chaos rather than bemoaning that it exists. And I, I commend that to everybody on whatever scale you're operating on as you listen to the show, because you don't know what's possible. Times are really strange and evilly strange right now, but therefore possibility is also enormous. Twisted is the word I would use. We live in twisted times. <laughs> yeah. You have no king but Jesus. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You were to find us or you wouldn't be here.